can you pinpoint the moment in time when Jesus saved you? Do you remember the time of your conversion? When were you fitted for or by the Holy Spirit for heaven? You might not be sure. Uh, some know that they are new creatures in the Lord. Uh, you may have a general idea as to when Jesus saved you, perhaps in childhood or at some point during a prolonged season of, of mental anguish or spiritual searching. Uh, perhaps you don't know the exact time of your conversion. Uh, some of the 12 disciples of Jesus, I believe, would have had this same kind of testimony. By the end of the three years that they spent with Him, they would have known... We know that we are Christians, but when were we converted precisely? We're not exactly sure. Perhaps some of them would tell you that. And that could be your own story. That at some point you became a Christian, but you can't really pinpoint the exact moment. But there are other people, however, that have dramatic conversion experiences. In fact, some conversions are so dramatic that they have come down through history as famous conversions. Think of Martin Luther's, uh, the monk who was trying with all his might through fastings and workings and, and vigils, trying to get to salvation, trying to save himself by his own works. Uh, he went from that to a moment in time reading the first chapter of the book of Romans, when he understood that justification is a gift from God, apart from any works of law. And he said that when that happens, in that tower where he was reading the book of Romans, he said, when that happened, I felt that altogether I was born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. So this is a dramatic conversion experience that Luther had. And so uh, was the conversion of John Wesley. Uh, Wesley's heart, you might have heard through the written accounts, his heart in that classical passage of his was strangely warmed as he listened to the public reading of Luther's preface to the book of Romans at Aldergate Street in London. And he felt at that moment, he writes, that he did trust in Christ Christ alone for salvation. And that again, that account of Wesley's conversion has come down through history as a famous conversion account. So some are well known, some conversions are, but there is one conversion that tops all of them in terms of a famous conversion. There is one conversion that stands out perhaps or for sure because it is actually recorded in the pages of holy scripture and that is the conversion of Zacchaeus the chief tax collector so i want you to turn there with me to Luke chapter 19 and we are going to be going over the account of Zacchaeus's conversion in Luke 19 beginning in verse 1 It says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, 
Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now what I want to do with you this morning is to dissect this story of Zacchaeus' conversion. I want us to look at the elements that make up this instance of repentance toward God in faith. Not because every conversion looks the same. No, in fact, every conversion looks different. Each salvation story is unique. Nevertheless, all conversions have some basic elements in common. And I want to draw those out for us this morning because we need to understand this. We need to be clear about the nature of true conversion. We need to know who the saved man or woman is. Because we don't understand this, the church, especially the modern church, has many troubles. Because there is a lack of understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And there is nothing uh, more important than your eternal destination, of course. There is nothing more important than to know whether you or those around you are right with God. Uh, there is no, nothing more important than truly coming to Christ and to know that you've truly come to Christ. And this passage helps with that. So we ought to look at it with care. And so again, I want to dissect Zacchaeus' conversion and look at the different elements in it. And the first element that we find in this conversion is the Savior. The Savior. The Savior makes, makes His entrance into this story in verse 1. Look at verse 1. It says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. Now the He here, of course, is Jesus Christ. He is said to be doing two things. On the one hand, He is said to have entered into Jericho. The use of the verb to enter here implies that He went into this city with a specific purpose. He had a purpose there. And that is in Jericho. The name Jericho here means uh, something like a place of fragrance. This was an ancient fenced city on the, uh, in the plain of the Jordan in the middle of a massive grove of palm trees. It actually was celebrated for its palm trees. And it was a rich and flourishing town. So much so that this was actually one of the wealthiest places in all the Near East. And our Lord had entered into Jericho for a specific work. Uh, nevertheless, it says not just that He entered, but it also says that He was passing through. In other words, He had gone to Jericho for something specific, but He wasn't intending to stay there. No, actually, He was passing through because He was on His way to Jerusalem, which was about 15 miles southwest of Jericho. That is where Jesus was headed. This is actually the last year of His ministry. He is going to Jerusalem one final time to die. And He was about to fulfill the mission given to Him by the Father from all eternity. He was about to go offer Himself up at the cross as a living sacrifice to pay for the sins in full of all who would ever believe in Him. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So if His people were to be forgiven, Christ the God-man needed to die. He needed to shed His blood. And He was going to do that in Jerusalem. So He is on His way to Jerusalem to accomplish His cross work. But before He could get there, He had something to do in Jericho. And that was to save Zacchaeus, to save Zacchaeus. But one observation that we can make just from verse 1 is that every conversion actually begins with none other than God Himself. It starts with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the first cause behind every salvation. Some want to make Man, the beginning point of salvation, they believe that the sinner is the one who takes the first step in the story of his own conversion. And that affects even the way in which you might do church. Uh, some people think that they can manipulate others 
into making a decision for Jesus Christ, to get them even in an emotional frenzy, hoping that the sinner will somehow be manipulated into making some sort of a decision to step toward the Savior. Because again, the assumption there is that man is the first one to take the step. But that's not how it works. No, Scripture is clear that salvation not only ends with God, but, it, but that it also begins with Him. John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And Titus 3, verses 3 and 5 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, and slaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, and His love for mankind, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And then 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. So God, again, is the first actor in salvation. He is the first mover. He is the beginning. Every conversion starts with Jesus Christ. And here we see that taking place. A Savior has come into Jericho. And there we will find a sinner. That's... The second element here in the conversion story of Zacchaeus, we have first the Savior, and now we have the sinner. Notice verse 2, the text says, And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Now the name Zacchaeus uh, comes from the root of the word pure or innocent in the Hebrew. And that, of course, doesn't mean that this man was innocent, as we'll see, but it means that he would have been a Jew. But in spite of being among God's chosen people, he is as lost as lost can be. He was, from a human standpoint, what you might say the least likely person to be saved. If he had a yearbook, he would be least likely to be a godly Man, Why? Well, on the one hand, it says he's a chief tax collector. And on the other, it says that he was a rich man. So his employment in life was to collect money on behalf of the government. You might remember that at this time, the uh, people of Israel, they were subject to the Roman Empire. They were under Roman rule, which meant that Rome could collect taxes from them. However... Rather than taking the money themselves, what they did was they hired out Jewish men to do the dirty work. And so there were Jewish men who represented the Roman government, the aggressive Roman government to their people. They shook people down for money. And for that reason, the rest of the Jews considered these men to be traitors. Because again, they were doing the dirty work on behalf of the aggressive empire. Now, if that were not enough, tax collectors had gotten for themselves a reputation of being extortioners. So, they had the law behind them. They had a certain amount of money that they had to collect on behalf of the Romans, but they tended to collect that and more. And that is how they would make a lot of money for themselves. That's why when you read the account of John the Baptist, when he's baptizing sinners, it says that a group of tax collectors, repentant tax collectors, came to John and said, how can we live as godly people now? And uh, John the Baptist said to them in Luke chapter 3, verse 13, collect no more than you have been ordered to collect. So again, tax collectors as a, as a whole, they were extortioners. They would abuse their office. And for that reason, they were considered in, uh, in their own society to be the worst kinds of sinners. They were traitors and extortioners. They were lovers of money to the nth degree. In fact, uh, the, you might remember the, the, the story of the... Pharisee who is praying at, in the temple and he's praying right next to a tax collector and he says in Luke chapter 
uh, 18 verse 9, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So they were uh, considered the worst kind of people. Even they were grouped with the prostitutes in the Gospels. They were the lowest of the low. They were the bottom of the culture. And here is Zacchaeus. He is one. But he isn't just any tax collector. It says he was the chief of them. He was chief tax collector. And that means that, of course, all the other tax collectors in the area, they worked for him. They were under his direction. And he got a cut from whatever they made. And since Jericho, again, was one of the wealthiest cities in the ancient Near East, then this man was very rich. It says he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Now, Luke, the author, is intended to, he is intending to place the wealth of Zacchaeus as an obstacle to his own well-being. And that's not because wealth is inherently sinful or having wealth is inherently sinful, but because riches are accompanied with a number of temptations. The temptation, for example, to be rich and se- or proud and self-sufficient. The temptation to live for this world only. And that is a point that Jesus himself made uh, to his disciples just in the previous chapter. You might remember the story of the rich young ruler. It's actually in chapter 18. And in that account, the rich young ruler approaches the Lord Jesus Christ and says, I've kept all the commandments. And um, uh, Jesus then says, you're missing one. Give up all things and come follow me. In other words, trade me for your riches. And it says that the rich young ruler walked away sad. And of course, you might remember there uh, in verse 24, if you look at that, uh, people were uneasy. Uh, or actually, in, in verse 24, this is Jesus' comment. After the rich young ruler walks away, he says, How hard it is for those who are, who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And of course, that makes people uneasy when they hear that. Notice their reaction. They who heard it said, Then who can be saved? Who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. So the point is that God does save the wealthy, but He does so in spite of the temptations that come come with wealth. He overcomes those temptations because He is all-powerful and nothing can keep the Almighty from accomplishing what He wants to do when He sets out to do it. He is unstoppable. And so here you find an instance in which a wealthy man is going to be saved. But here is Again, Zacchaeus, he's in a bad place. He is, for all intents and purposes, the man who is least likely to be saved. He's a sinner, and he is also a tempted sinner by his own wealth. And if you think about it, this is also the same situation in which you find yourself in. Because on the one hand, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you are a sinner the way Zacchaeus was a sinner. You say, well, he was, he was a tax collector. I mean, he's at the bottom of the culture. He's grouped with the prostitutes. That's not me. And the reality is that even if that's not you, even if you are a very uh, decent kind of person, the reality is that if you have sinned once, you've already missed the mark. I mean, think of trying to cross the Grand Canyon with one jump. And you're next to someone who is lame. Perhaps that person gets only three feet into the Grand Canyon and you get ten feet in your jump you still missed the mark. <laughs> you still missed it. Or, or imagine a corpse that has, been, that has been decomposing for 10 days. And then the corpse of someone who died 5 minutes ago. Decomposition has not set in yet, but they're both still dead. And so, you are a sinner. No matter whether you're at the bottom of the culture, or you are a decent kind of person... 
you're in the same place as Zacchaeus. And you're also tempted the way that he was. You say, well, I'm not rich like Zacchaeus. Uh, and the, uh, so I don't have this kind of temptation of, of, uh, of having all this wealth. But to that I say, given the society in which you live, you probably have more than almost any other person in the history of humanity did before us. Even if you don't fit in the top 5% of the population today, you still have more comforts than Zacchaeus did. He didn't have an air conditioner. Maybe you have that. So again, there's a parallel between his situation and your own. You're a sinner and you are also a tempted sinner. But of course, the good news is again that God is able, He is able to overcome his spirit is able to override any obstacles that stand in the way of your salvation. And that is what happens right here in this passage. And that brings me to the third element of Zacchaeus' conversion story. And that is the spirit. So you, we've seen the savior. We've seen the sinner. And now we come to the spirit. Look at verses 3 and 4. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. Now, the verb to try here has the idea of devoting a serious effort in realizing an objective here. It's the same verb that Jesus actually used in Matthew 6.33 when he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And Paul also used this verse, or this verb in Colossians 3, 1. If then you have been raised up with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So there's an intense desire, a longing after something here. Zacchaeus is longing, trying hard to see who Jesus Christ is might be. He wanted to know who he was. Obviously, at this time in the Lord's ministry, right at the end, the word has spread. There's all obviously a buzz surrounding him. He had many enemies, but also many people who wanted to see who he was. Many were saying that he was the Messiah. They all knew that he had powers to perform signs and wonders, uh, and that they were hearing his message that he had come to save the lost. And so Zacchaeus found himself trying to see who this man he who this man was. He wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus Christ. And obviously this could have been a matter of curiosity only. Uh, that's what happened with Herod. He also wanted to meet Jesus. And Luke chapter 23 verse 8 says, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus for he wanted to see him for a long time. Because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. So notice, Herod was one who really wanted to see who Jesus was. He wanted to meet him, but not because he wanted to be saved. Uh, no, but rather he simply wanted to be impressed. He knew that Jesus carried an air around him and that people were flocking to him. He wanted to see perhaps a miracle done by Jesus Christ. And so this desire to meet Jesus was purely fleshly. And most of the Jews actually were approaching Jesus in that way. They wanted to see Him do something for them, astound their eyes or something like that. And to be sure, some say that perhaps this is what Zacchaeus himself was falling into. And that could be true, I suppose, but I don't believe that because I actually believe that the Spirit of God was drawing him, that this is a work of the Spirit. Why? Well... Notice what Zacchaeus here was willing to do in order to see who Jesus was. It says again, he was trying to see who Jesus was in verse 3, but he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order, in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. The uh, crowd mentioned here uh, was the caravan that was accompanying Jesus to Jerusalem, this caravan is going to end up merging with, in the triumphal entry. So this is a sizable number of people. Uh, it would have been a, a large group. Uh, Christ's ministry was at the point at which the, 
masses were surrounding him. Uh, so if you think about it, Jesus would have been uh, somewhat difficult to get to, to sort of even see. And, and Luke points out here that Zacchaeus is a short man, could not even see the Lord pass the crowd. But he finds a way to do that. It says that he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him. Now, uh, to be sure, in that culture, for a man to be running was considered a humiliating thing. We, we still sort of identify with that when you don't typically see respectable uh, men running in the middle of the streets, as it were. And it, it, back then, it was even more so that a man who wanted to be respectful, especially someone who was wealthy, would never allow himself to be seen running. But here we find Zacchaeus dashing toward a place. And it says that that was a sycamore tree. Now that would have been a fig mulberry tree, very fragrant with big leaves, and they grow as tall as 60 feet. So Zacchaeus found himself uh, a place in the trunk of one of those trees. And he did so because on that same road where the tree was, Jesus was. It says that Jesus was about to pass through that way. So Zacchaeus gets himself in a position where he's going to come very much in contact with the Lord. He's going to be able to see him up close. But think about it again. Zacchaeus is a man who's running and climbing. A, 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 a man in that culture who was not supposed to run nor climb is here running and climbing. He was willing to make himself a fool to get a glimpse of Jesus. And for that reason, I don't believe that this was mere curiosity. No, I believe that this was a, a work of the Spirit of God, that He was being drawn, He was being prepared for an encounter with the Savior. Uh, the Spirit here is giving Zacchaeus such a desire to see something of the Lord Jesus Christ that he is even forgetting himself. He is forgetting his reputation. He is willing to take risks. We're going to see something like that also in the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you might remember, comes to Jesus first at night. He was taking some risk. Of course, he's minimizing the risks. But he still comes to Jesus at, at night. There's a, there's a kind of a risk there. But then you move forward to John chapter 7. And at that point, Nicodemus is sort of speaking out for Jesus Christ. So he's getting bolder. And then at the end of the gospel story, it is Nicodemus who actually comes and gathers the body of Jesus Christ to bury it. Something which the 11 disciples themselves were not willing to do. So there was a, there was a drawing there. There was a, a, a time in which the Spirit was, was making this man more and more attracted to the Lord and more and more willing to for, forget himself. But that is what happens to sinners when they are under the power of the Spirit. Uh, that may have happened to you. You at one point were embarrassed to even step inside of a church building. Or afraid to even get into the Scriptures and read what might be there. Afraid of knowing what God expects of you. What, what would God uh, ask me to do? But of course, the Spirit begins His work and He begins His influence. And you begin to forget yourself. And you actually start to put yourself in ways in which you might have an encounter with Jesus Christ. So you go to church, you open up your Bible, you spend time around godly people asking questions. Uh, you do something akin to what Zacchaeus was doing here. And when that encounter with the Lord finally happens, the result is salvation. The result is salvation. And that's the next element in the story of Zacchaeus' conversion here. So we've seen the Savior, we've seen the sinner, we've seen the Spirit, and now let's look at the salvation. In verses 5 and 6, it says, When Jesus came to the place, He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And He hurried and came down and received Him gladly. 
the term place there, notice, it has a definite article. This is not a place, but the place. You say, what place? Well, the exact place where Zacchaeus had placed himself in. So as it turns out, when the Lord entered into Jericho, he actually was headed straight to that tree. He was headed to the place where Zacchaeus was all along. You see, sometimes we think that we are the ones looking for the Lord. And it is, as it turns out, He that has been coming to get us. He is the one who has orchestrated all things to create an encounter between you and Him. So from our human perspective, we are seeking Christ. But the reality is that before you went out seeking Him, He is the one who came seeking for you. And that is what happened here. The Lord comes exactly to the tree where Zacchaeus is. And it says that He looked up. I like to imagine Him smiling and saying, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down for today. I must stay at your house. Now don't miss this. These men had never met each other. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and yet we find Jesus calling him by his own name. Zacchaeus, come. Come down. That obviously is proof of the fact that he is God. Isaiah 40 verse 26, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of His might and the strength of His power, not one of them is missing. Now obviously, uh, that passage talks about God God knowing the names of the stars. But if He knows the names of the stars, how much more does He know our name, your name, my name? He, in fact, knows the name of every person in this room. If Jesus were to walk in in this room... And He would go one by one. He would know your name. He would know exactly who you are. He would know every secret of your heart. He would make you feel as He made Nathaniel feel. When He said, uh, Jesus it says that, saw Nathaniel coming to Him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, a man of true faith, in whom there is no deceit, And Nathanael said, How do you know me? How do you know me? And Jesus said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So Christ knows everything about you. Nothing is hidden from Him. He knows your spiritual state, whether you are alive or dead. He knows whether you're genuine or hypocritical. He knows your struggles. He knows your anxieties. He knows all of your, all that there is to know about you. He, and He is a physician to the soul. One who heals. In this case, the one needing to be healed is Zacchaeus. So He comes to this tree, looks up and says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. Hurry and come down. I must stay at your house. I love that he says, hurry, hurry and come down. Do this quickly. Jesus wanted Zacchaeus to come down quickly and to receive him promptly. They were to spend time together. Zacchaeus needed to know Jesus Christ soon. This is an urgent matter. The call of the gospel is urgent. You have to respond to it quickly. Hurry and come down. Think about it. Death could be on you at any second. You are a fragile creature who could die at any given moment. Anything could kill you. So every moment that you spend on planet earth is a moment that you spend on the brink of eternity. And once you cross that chasm, there is no coming back. There is no second chance if you have not had your sins forgiven before you've gone on to eternity, you are going to go to hell, is what the Scriptures teach us. That's an eternity of suffering, never-ending torment in darkness, no laughter, no joy, no pleasure, ever increasing even hatred of God Himself. 
the wicked do not stop sinning in hell. They get worse in hell. They sin more in hell. So that bitterness and that anger and that anger and enmity against God only grows there. And uh, then you have also all the regrets of all the opportunities that you miss. That is the destiny of the soul in torment. So this is again urgent. It needs to happen now. Paul said himself to the Corinthians, Today is the day of salvation. If you hear Jesus Christ calling you today, you need to answer to Him. You need not waste a second. You have to come to Him now. This is the opportunity that you have. This is the day of salvation. And so... I would invite you, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, to pray even right where you are seated for Him to save you, for Him to forgive you of your sins. Don't walk out of this building without settling your eternal destiny, without knowing that you are in Jesus Christ. And again, Jesus said to Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. We have to get to know each other right now. Hurry and come down for today. I must stay at your house. Uh, the, the expression, I must here, means it is necessary. So if you notice, Jesus doesn't give man an option here. Uh, he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't expect to, he doesn't just invite, in, even though he does in some sense. There's another sense in which he is commanding you to believe in him. The call of Jesus Christ is not optional. The scriptures you might have seen often speak of the gospel, not as something that you just have to believe in or that you have, you're invited to believe in, but also as something that you need to obey, the command of God. The gospel is a command. Romans 2.8 To those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but, but obey unrighteousness, God assigns wrath and indignation. And 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says that the Lord Jesus will come down dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So again, the gospel is a command. And of course, our modern evangelical uh, culture down, downplays that reality. People like to speak of Jesus as a kind of gentle figure who would never do anything uh, that against your desire, who exists merely to give you what you want. But actually, the reality is he is a king who demands to be received by his creatures. And the first of those demands, again, is that you repent and believe in the gospel. Be reconciled to God through Christ. So I command you, and when you go out and you are preaching the gospel, there is a place for saying, I command you, be reconciled to God this day. Have your sins forgiven. Be forgiven through Jesus Christ. Rest in the atoning blood of the Savior. Come to Him. Be like Zacchaeus, who actually did obey it. Notice verse 6. It says, He hurried and came down and received Him gladly. Notice He uses the same verbs to, exp to express how how uh, how how minute the obedience of Zacchaeus was. He hurried, he came down, he received Jesus. But notice, um, it says um, here, obviously he received him, he probably prepared a meal and lodging for him. But notice the comment that Luke makes about the heart of Zacchaeus. It says he received Jesus gladly, gladly. And that means, I believe, that the moment Jesus addressed Zacchaeus, something happened to Zacchaeus internally within his heart was changed he was like the thessalonians in first thessalonians uh, 1 5 where it says our gospel did not come to you in word only but also in power and in the holy spirit and with full conviction and he was also like lydia in acts sixteen fourteen, where it says that as she was listening to the preaching of the apostle paul the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So you see, there's a distinction between what the preacher is saying and what God is doing to make that message effective. And sometimes the first shows up without the second. Sometimes the 
preacher speaks, but God in His own sovereignty uh, does not transform the hearts. Nevertheless, in other occasions, when God shows His grace and the Spirit comes, the Spirit miraculously gives the hearer the faith and the understanding to receive the gospel. We call this the effectual call. There, there is an external call and then there is an effectual call. And that is again a reminder that salvation is all of God. You depend on Him not only to get a message to proclaim to others and the strength and the wisdom to know how to express that message to others, but you also depend on Him to open the ears of the one who is hearing. And this is why we need to be a praying people that God would use us to save sinners. That's why even when you go into a church and you hear a preacher preaching the gospel, you ought to immediately begin to pray, God, make this message effective in the heart of those who might be there who have not yet received the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, pray that God would issue His effectual call because it is only when He shows mercy and gets to work that there is any positive response to what is being said. Now, to be sure, the grace of God is something mysterious. It provokes uh, the men and women of the world to, to a struggle within. Uh, we struggle to understand how it can be that God can be so good, that salvation can be so free. And that is the, the next element that we find here in this conversion of Zacchaeus. So we've seen the Savior, we've seen the sinner, we've seen the work of the Spirit, and we've seen the, the salvation of Zacchaeus. But let's look at the, the struggle that followed Zacchaeus' conversion. It says in verse 7, When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Notice uh, the, the pronoun uh, they here, some believe, refers to the Pharisees, because in that area there were many Pharisees around. Uh, the, Jerusalem, again, was very nearby, some 15 miles, miles away from Jer Jericho, and Jerusalem was the headquarters of the religious leaders of the nation, and so Jericho would have been littered with uh, men from that party, from the Pharisaical party, and they would have been around Jesus, dogging His steps, and perhaps it is they who see what is going on and they begin to grumble. But actually, uh, Luke doesn't qualify the pronoun. He doesn't say that it was only a portion of the crowd, but rather he says they all began to grumble when they saw this. So this is the whole crowd began to grumble. They all grumbled and said, He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. The, the, the verb grumble here that carries the idea of complaining with a sense of indignation. This crowd was indignant, perhaps because Zacchaeus had become rich off their backs, taking money from them. He's become wealthy as a tax collector, taking money from his own people to give to their oppressors, to Rome. But actually, if you pay attention, the great offense is not so much on what he had done, but rather on who he was. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Uh, the, 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 verb, the, or the word sinner here refers not so much to someone who sins, every person does, but I believe that they are specifically speaking of someone whose life is just obviously all about sin. Again, uh, tax collectors were like the prostitutes. This was all your life is, and even your living is based on sin. And the people could not understand how Jesus could associate Himself with someone like this. This is because they could not understand grace. Grace. And that included uh, even the good men. Perhaps His own disciples in this crowd are saying, how could this be? Even uh, Christians have a true have a have a, a a hard time truly grasping the freeness of the gospel even after they've been regenerated think of the prodigal son it says that he came to his own right mind right and he is on his way back to the father and he's thinking with his own right mind right but as he is going he's planning out the speech of how he is going to gain the favor of his father he is saying well just treat me like one of your servants. He's having a hard time understanding 
the free and full forgiveness of the Father. And we ourselves have a time, a, a difficult time understanding that. I mean, I'll give you an example. Think of a, of a man who rapes and kills a woman. And that woman was not a Christian and she ends up in an eternity in hell. But that man then goes to a prison system where he hears the gospel and he ends up with a crown of glory for all eternity. That's, that can be difficult for us to swallow. But that is grace. God giving favor to one who does not deserve it when he wants to and to whom he wants to. There are people suffering in hell today for less sins that you already have committed. In other words, you've already sinned more than some who are already in an eternity of suffering. Grace. It is God's to give. It is God's to bestow. It's antithetical to what we understand in the world. Or, or the, it's antithetical to the thinking of this world. It's free. It's not based on the creature, but rather on the sovereign will of the living God. So that's the struggle. Uh, let's look at the next component of this famous conversion. We've seen the Savior, the sinner, the Spirit, the salvation, the struggle. Let's look at the sign. The sign. The outward sign of the genuineness of Zacchaeus' conversion. Verse 8. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. The, the verb to stand here actually carries the idea of standing or coming into the presence of someone. So you can translate this as he appeared or even he stepped up to where the people was. The, 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 the idea here is that he is addressing Jesus, but he's addressing Jesus in a public way. He's talking before the crowd. By the way, notice there is not no such thing as a private Christian. You can't just say that your spiritual life, well, that's just between me and the Lord. Nobody else needs to know about it. But I actually do believe in God. It's just, be, it's just me, between the two of us. No, if you are going to follow Jesus, you are to acknowledge Him before all the world. Matthew 10, 33, or 32 and 33. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Zacchaeus, if you notice here, he was acknowledging Jesus publicly. Maybe the crowd had come along uh, with him to his house with Christ or else they may have even just been standing outside as onlookers and perhaps Zacchaeus brings Jesus out and he makes a public stance saying Lord I will give half my possessions to the poor and if I have defrauded anyone of anything I will give four times as much notice he calls Jesus Lord and first Corinthians 12 3 says no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit so Zacchaeus has the Spirit and he is giving a sign here by saying, Lord, he's acknowledging him publicly. But uh, beyond that, notice the offer that he makes. He says, half my positions I give to the poor and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I give four times as much. So he takes off all that he owns and he chops it up into two halves. Half goes to the poor Half is reserved for restitution. And uh, to be sure, he's not doing this to atone for sins. No, the atonement was accomplished by Christ at the cross. This man is not trying to accomplish his own salvation, but rather this is the fruit of his conversion. This is the sign that this man is born again. This is what results from his, uh, uh, what results from his meeting Jesus. Whereas this man had at one time been a lover of money, so much of a lover of money that he was, being, he, was a, he was willing to be considered a traitor, he was willing to be an extortioner, he was, he was willing to go up the ranks among all the tax collectors. He was such a lover of money. But now he's doing the exact opposite. Now he's a giver. Now he wants to care for the poor. Half of what I have, Give it to the poor. Ephesians 4.28 He who steals 
must, must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own, hand, his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Now more than that, Zacchaeus also wants to make restitution. And the law of God in Leviticus 6 verses 4 and 5 demanded that if you, uh, that if you got money through extortion, uh, that you do make restitution, but that you give back what you took plus a fifth part as a kind of interest. Leviticus 6 verses 4 and 5 says, He shall restore what he, should, what he took by robbery or what he got by extortion or the deposit which was entrusted to him or the lost thing which he found, verse 5, or anything about which he swore falsely, he shall make restitution for it in full and add to it one-fifth more. So if you got money through extortion, you owed what you took plus a fifth part. But Zacchaeus obviously is going way over and above he is promising to give four times as much and that would have left him i'm sure entirely poor if he gave his legitimate earnings to the poor and re- and and returned to everyone what he got through extortion four times he is left with nothing but again this is the sign that his conversion is real true salvation is accompanied by signs or fruits you make things right insofar as god allows you to you make amends paul described that in second corinthians verses 7 10 and 11 he says the sorrow that is according to the will of god produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation but the sorrow of the world produces death for behold what earnestness he was saying to the corinthians what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So notice, there is a kind of repentance that leads to death. We call that remorse. That is what Judas had and it led him to take his own life. But there is, on the other hand, a godly repentance And that is, of course, a heavenly gift. And that repentance seeks to make amendments, to avenge one's own wrongs. It makes you seek to fix whatever you had broken. It makes you long for restoration. And that is a sign of true conversion. And that sign is always, of course, followed by a statement from the Lord Jesus Christ in which He affirms your faith. That's the last element here. In the conversion of Zacchaeus that I want to look at. So we've seen the Savior, the sinner, the spirit, the salvation, the struggle, and the sign. We have one more. And that is the statement. The statement. Christ makes a statement about you following your conversion. Look at verses 9 and 10. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Uh, the word salvation here refers, of course, to salvation not mainly from purposelessness or unfulfillment, as people like to say today, but rather this is salvation mainly from the wrath of a holy God. Uh, Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So if you sin, you have to die, but there is salvation in Jesus Christ. And that, he says, has come into this man's house. Now notice, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't just say salvation has come to you, Zacchaeus. But it says, it has come to your house. That's interesting. Including his wife, his children, his servants. And that's not to say, of course, that Zacchaeus had somehow believed on behalf of his wife or children or servants Uh, but the point is that once a sinner repents and is saved those who are close to him are close or become close to salvation themselves Zacchaeus' wife his children his servants they were likely to believe in the Lord Jesus themselves when you believe in the gospel you have great hope to hope that your family also 
will become believers. Because if you think about it, now it means that God has planted in your house a witness for the gospel. So there's great hope that those who are around you also will be saved. And it may take time. It may take a lot of prayerful tears and a lot of waiting. But you can have great hope that if God saved you and He put you next to your husband or your children, He put you in the same household as this other person who needs salvation, you can have great hope that He also will save them. Notice the Lord said to Zacchaeus here, so today again, salvation has come to this house because He too is a son of Abraham. And what He's doing here is He's affirming that Zacchaeus' salvation is true, it is genuine. That he is a son of Abraham meant not only that he is a Jew externally, the way that the Pharisees were, but that he is a Jew externally and also internally. He was following after the foot the footsteps of his father Abraham, who was the man of faith. So Christ is again affirming that Zacchaeus was a genuine Christian, that he was one of the men and women uh, whom he came for, that he came into the world to to save even Zacchaeus. He says, uh, the Son of Man came to save, to seek and to save that which was lost. The, uh, the, uh, the, 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 The word lost here is referring to a number of statements that Jesus had already made throughout the Gospels. In Matthew 15, 24, He had said, I was sent only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And beyond that, He's also alluding to a statement that He had made in uh, Luke 15, verses 4 and 5, uh, 4 and 5, where He says, when, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, He lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. So Christ is the great shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep and goes out to find the the one lost lamb. And he is saying, Zacchaeus, you were that. You belong to me. I came for you. So he's affirming Zacchaeus' faith. And he does that today. You say, how? He's not around in person. So how does he do this? And the answer is, he does it through his Holy Spirit. Spirit. He affirms you as a lost sheep who has been found by His Spirit. Romans chapter 18 verses 15 through 17. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and His children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we also may be glorified with Him. And 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 says, He sealed us with, uh, He sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit. So when God gave, when God saves you, He gives you His Spirit to assure you that the Son of Man had come to seek you and that you are a son or a daughter of Abraham, that your faith is true. And yes, there are instances in which you might struggle to know, have I truly been saved Do I truly believe in Jesus Christ? There are those seasons of darkness and the Lord has His own perfect reason for for that. It may be simply to teach you to hate your sin. Or it may be to increase your longing and your love for Jesus Christ. He may remove His his experience that, that you get through Him. He may remove that just to make you long for Him even more. Nevertheless, at some point or another, and to some degree or another, the reality is that He comes to you and He whispers into your soul, You are mine. You are a son of Abraham. You are a daughter of Abraham. Your faith is genuine. You belong to God.
And that is what the gospel is. This is what we have in our message that God has given to us. To be accepted before God forever through His Son. So the question is, are you looking to Jesus Christ this morning? Are you resting in Him? Are you depending on His perfect righteousness? Is He, Jesus, your Savior and your God? Are you His? Is He yours? If not, my prayer is that He would perform heart surgery on you even this day, that He would put in you a heart of flesh and that He would give you His Spirit and make you walk after Him. But if you are looking to Jesus, if you are a Christian, my prayer is that you would go out from this place rejoicing in what He has done, who came right where you were, who came to save you. My prayer is that you would rejoice in that and that you would go out of here full of glory because of the salvation that He has saved you with, with, and that you would be committed to seeking to be the instrument through which the Son of Man continues to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank You for Your faithfulness. Thank You for meeting with us in our darkness, saving us. We worship you and we pray for Jesus Christ to be exalted in our lives. Use us, we ask, to be instruments of your mercy. For his name's sake, amen.